When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This edition of How to Be a CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean-Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. ES Audio. What happens when you realize you've accidentally created a powerful brand that you now want to turn into a business? You don't necessarily start out to start a business, but you start out to fix a problem and you realize quite quickly that you're not the only person with that problem and there's an obvious opportunity as a result. This is an invitation to meet Ella Mills, founder of wellness brand Deliciously Ella, one of the biggest and most varied plant-based health brands in the country. We alone as a brand have got have had three million people in the UK buy our products in the last six months. This is a story about creating a business from a passion project and making it work even if you have to do some things in reverse. I think we have done things probably in quite an unconventional manner across the board. I'm John Weeks from The Evening Standard. Now, let's head back to 2011. Ella Mills was at university struggling with her health, and despite being prescribed a cocktail of medication, nothing was working to tackle her conditions. What she did next would not only improve her health, and she says help her recover from the conditions that made her so ill, but also help her create a hit brand and lead her into a lucrative business. So Ella, first of all, here we are 10 years after you launched Deliciously Ella. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams, 10 years from now, I'm going to have such a successful and varied business as you actually do today? No, and I feel it's one of those things that when people say, oh, I never expected it to happen, it always sounds a bit, maybe a bit forced, a bit inauthentic, but genuinely, not in my wildest expectations would we be where we are today. I think both on a personal and professional level for such a kind of huge multitude of reasons. I think first of all, and like my parents would be the first people to attest to this, like I was not an ambitious person at all. You know, I'm one of four siblings. Like if you'd said to my parents, oh, which of your children will start a company? Like who by 30 will have 50 people in their team? Like no one would have said Ella. Like no one who knew me, definitely not. And so I think that was kind of the first part. And I think the second part is also when I started Delicious Yellow 10 years ago, what we do now was so weird. It was so niche. And I think it feels really extraordinary to say that because now plant-based is absolutely everywhere. There's a huge growing interest in health and well-being and a really clear association between the way that we live our lives and our health. And that just didn't exist 10 years ago. What we were doing seemed very weird, very niche, very strange, so far out of the mainstream that the idea also that we could have built a business with this as the focus and it 
be as mainstream as it is also feels quite extraordinary. And I suppose that's quite a good summary of that last 10-year period that we've had. Going back to the start, can you tell us about Deliciously Ella? Because originally it was just a blog, wasn't it? It was, and it wasn't meant for anybody else. And I think that's the kind of irony of the whole thing. So I started it, um, yeah, April 2012. I'd been really unwell. I'd spent about a year in our various hospitals having every test under the sun, every ultrasound, MRI, you know, endoscopy, everything to rule out all sorts of things. And I was diagnosed with a few conditions, but the, the main one um, affected the functioning of my autonomic nervous system. And actually, for the first time, I feel like you can kind of semi-describe it by likening it to long COVID, which was this extraordinary chronic fatigue. I mean, I literally couldn't get out of bed. I had um, loads of immune problems. I had so many infections. I spent three and a half years in antibiotics, had to go into hospital for antibiotic drips. I had really chronic stomach problems. I mean, I looked more pregnant when I was ill than I did at seven and a half months pregnant with my daughter. I also couldn't control my heart rate, my blood pressure. Um, I'd black out. Um, I'd be so dizzy I couldn't walk. I mean, it was it was horrendous and, and obviously had a huge toll on my physical health, but actually then ended up having a massive toll on my mental health. And after about a year of trying every medication that the doctors had to offer, you know, I was 21, I tried beta blockers, steroids, antacids, you name it nothing had really made a huge difference. And I became very, very interested in lifestyle and um, in the way in which we live our lives and the effect that that has on our health and our well-being. But I couldn't cook. And, you know, again, it sounds so strange to say it now when healthy food is so kind of abundant. There are just an infinite number of resources everywhere for, you know, BBC Good Food and so on has so many plant-based recipes focused on health and well-being and fruit and vegetables but that was absolutely lacking at this point you know plant-based wasn't a term that anybody had come across I think it was about three to five percent of the population were buying into plant-based in in any way in the UK now it's about 50 percent so I mean it really was kind of on the fringes in that sense and I realized on day one that if I was going to change my diet if I was going to change the way I lived I had to want to do it and I had to therefore feel sustainable like I had to want to do it day in day out and I think that's that's really a fundamental difference I think about healthy diet versus a diet in the conventional use of the word is that something that makes you feel good and you actually enjoy and you want to do for decades as opposed to a week and I realized if I was going to achieve that the food had to taste really good I could never feel like I was compromising all the time and so I set about teaching myself to cook and teaching myself to do that and that was why I started deliciousella.com but it was a personal project it wasn't intended to become anything else and stories like yours absolutely fascinate me about people who are ill they try the medications nothing works but then a change in lifestyle dramatically improves their life can you talk us through what that process was like in terms of changing your lifestyle and how you saw improvements yeah, definitely. And it absolutely fascinates me as well. I'm doing a degree in nutrition at the moment and kind of getting much more into the nitty gritty and the science. And there's definitely, I've certainly had a lot of aha moments over the last few years, because I think to begin with, it was difficult to understand, okay, well, how could changing the way that I live really have such a fundamental impact on my body? And the more I start to understand it, the more it actually makes a huge amount of sense. And I wish that information was more widely available But I really found it difficult, really, really difficult. And I think I probably find it easier now, again, just because we have had this change in narrative and change in accessibility 
of healthy plant-based food, you're no longer kind of complete weirdo for doing it, which is exactly how I felt in the beginning. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't widely available. Now you can get oat milk, almond milk, you know, as an example, in every coffee shop in England. And, and that was so far from the case 10 years ago. So I think that has made a fundamental difference in how easy it is now. But at that point, I felt very alien to everybody around me. There was a huge amount of kind of why, how on earth could you think this could help? You know, a lot of scepticism, as well as the fact that, again, it was just so far from mainstream practice. And it definitely wasn't a quick fix. It definitely wasn't a magic bullet. And I think that's such an important point to get across. I mean, I remember when I was finally diagnosed with the illness, it had been about six months of hospital tests and doctor's visits. And I remember being thrilled, which is such a strange reaction when you're so ill, you can barely get out of bed and someone tells you, oh, you've got a chronic illness that you may have the rest of your life. And by the way, you're only 21 and you'll be on a, like a full spreadsheet of medication for the foreseeable future. But I was absolutely thrilled because I just assumed that it would be fixed like that. Like I just assumed it would be like having tonsillitis and getting antibiotics and, you know, give it a short period of time and, and it all would be well again. And that obviously wasn't the case at all. And I think it took me several years to realise that like this was going to be a kind of cycle of ups and downs and I'd get better and I'd get worse and I'd get better and I'd get worse and kind of over time I did get better but it wasn't linear by by any stretch of the imagination and that was definitely a kind of hard mental journey. Yeah because I imagine the sort of having the wherewithal to stick with it as you say you know what sort of kept you going and pushing you through and, and keeping to, to a plant-based diet? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I certainly had those moments where you think this is so much effort. Is it really worth it? And I think my mum was amazing, actually. She was such a huge support. And she would always say to me, like, okay, well, your bad day today might feel really bad, but it is a better bad day than you had six months ago. You know, you've got less pain, you feel less brain fog, you feel less exhausted, like you feel more able to maybe do this one thing that you wouldn't have been able to do six months ago, 12 months ago. So yeah, it might feel like a bad day compared to last week, but it is a better day. Like there is obviously progress. So that I think that championing was like absolutely essential. I certainly couldn't have, I don't think I could have done it without. So that really kind of, I think for me, made the world a difference to keep going and then, yeah, over time, realising it was making a difference really helped. But actually, the whole kind of concept of Delicious Ciela began to really help because there was then this sense of community. I mean, it again, as I said, like it never was intended for other people. But I think I wasn't the only person who couldn't find the resources they were looking for. And so the community grew super, super quickly. In the first few years, we'd had about 130 million hits on the website. And people kept writing in, oh, well, you know, I'm having this experience. I'm having this challenge you know, could you make a recipe for this? Could you organise cooking classes? Could you get people together? And I think that was huge inspiration. Like I've always said that Delicious Yellow is a really community-led brand. And again, I think it can sound one of those things that's like a little bit cheesy and a bit of a kind of tagline, but actually like it's, you know, the absolute foundations of everything that we are as a company and everything that we are as a brand was built on that sense of community. And they were what shaped especially the foundations of the company in those early days. I imagine that's sort of every every business person's dream having your audience tell you exactly what they want. <laughs> yeah I mean in, in that sense we're really unusual because we built a brand before we built a business which is obviously a very very unusual way to go about anything. Normally you'd create a product and then try and find an audience for it whereas we did the absolute opposite. We didn't we started, well, I started the brand in 2012 and then we started selling food products in mid-2016. So we'd had four years or so of growth and of building a community 
and of understanding what people wanted and where the opportunities were, which again was inadvertent, but it was, I think it's an interesting recipe for, for success actually. And you've managed to sort of capitalize on that because you've branched out into so many different areas, obviously you kicked off with social media, big on YouTube, food in the supermarkets, you've got your own restaurant, you've got a podcast yourself now. Um, What's that like, juggling so many different sort of elements of, of a business? Yeah, I think like busy is probably <laughs> the, the quickest way to describe it. No, it keeps it interesting to say the least, but it is, I think it, it has it has its merits and it has its challenges, I guess, like anything, doesn't it? Like It's been an extraordinary opportunity for growth and for learning, um, but equally it does, it does mean that there's a huge amount going on at any one time the company feels like it never, ever, ever sleeps. But I think that's probably the case for a lot of scale-ups and, and it's an exciting opportunity and an exciting moment. But it does, I mean, there's always a problem. And I understand recently you decided to buy out your investors, sort of go it alone. Can you tell us sort of what was the thinking behind that decision? What sort of prompted you to do it? Yeah, it was, it's an interesting one. So in 2017, we, um, the company was growing really, really fast. And like, I think a lot of companies in that sort of position, you need support with cash flow effectively. And so we did, we did need some investment. So we took on a relatively small amount of investment and they owned sub 20% of the company. And as with lots of investments, you know, five year life cycle and, there was a moment where there were kind of three options. They could sell their shares, which at that point in time for the journey of the company didn't feel like the right thing for us. They could stay, but again, they could sell at any point. So that wasn't necessarily guaranteed. Or we could raise debt and buy them back. And we've always been quite passionate about running the business from profit. We have never used outside capital for growth. The outside capital was for cash flow and for the running of the business at that point. But ever since the business has been profitable and everything that we do has been profitable, which I know is actually a really unusual way to run a business. It feels like in this day and age where there's a huge celebration of extraordinary rounds of capital to fund unprofitable businesses, um, which, yeah, it's the opposite of, of how we've wanted to do things. We've wanted to to grow from within our own means. But we we did, we were profitable enough and successful enough to raise the debt to buy them out. So we decided to do that. And you know, I don't I don't know what the future holds, but at that point it definitely felt again, I think both me and my husband, he's our he's our CEO, feel like, you know, at this point, well, we own the shares, we are the kind of guardians of of the company, of the brand. And we may be the right people forever. We, we might not be. But at that point, it very much felt that, that we would be. So it sort of counterintuitively was a way of protecting the business rather than, you know, it sounds like a risky move, but actually you did it to sustain the business going forward. We did, although we also did do it thinking, oh, we're coming out the end of COVID and then like smack Omicron comes and all the huge supply chain challenges and things at the moment. So yes, definitely have had a few moments where we thought, oh, that was a big decision and a big risk. But as you said, it's kind of taking one risk to safeguard another. And in terms of actually going about that, were there sort of awkward conversations? Was it quite simple? How was the process? Yeah, it was a mix actually. It was relatively simple. I think it's simpler than we thought it could have been, which was fantastic. 
But obviously, yeah, there's definitely a kind of absolutely terrifying personal moment in in taking on that that amount of debt for the company. And I think any founder and, and CEO feels huge responsibility anyway every day to, to, for, to keep a business alive and well. It feels like a child in that sense. And so then taking on those extra layers of responsibility definitely takes a, a personal toll, I think, at moments. And would you say you've sort of reaped the benefits of that decision? Yeah, I think so. And I think the main thing for us was that element of control of knowing that, you know, we would shape the future of the company. Who knows what that will be, but but that that was our decision to make. And I think that was something that was very, very important to us both. Let's take a break now. Feel free to give us a follow and a rating in the meantime. And in part two, we'll find out how the Deliciously Ella community gives an insight into the plant-based food sector and what's next for the business. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So really, you've done the whole thing backwards. You've done things the wrong way around, but they've worked out in the right way. You've gone from having investors and then becoming a family-run business. It's normally the other way around. How do you explain how that's worked out? I don't know. I think it's been so far so good. I mean, we've obviously got a huge amount wrong and we've made a lot of mistakes, but I think kind of for the most part, the business has grown extraordinarily well, much better than we could have probably ever expected in in lots of ways. And it's really thriving. When it comes to plant-based food and things, you sort of touched on it earlier about how it's changed so much in the last decade. Do you think you and Deliciously Ella is sort of partly down to that? Do you think you've been part of that movement, I suppose? Hard question to answer, isn't it? You, um, uh, yeah, I guess, at, at, you know, at the risk of taking too much credit, I, obviously, by no means are we the number one driving force. There's a huge number of factors at play. But I, I do think that we have helped the advent of this conversation and of moving plant-based food into the mainstream our first cookbook in 2015 was the first cookbook of this kind that, that really did that and that, that moved fully plant-based food into the mainstream and, and kind of topping the charts and things like that. So I do think so. But as I said, by no means have we done that alone. I think it's been, you know, really collective movement. And I think, as I said at the beginning, when, when we started about 10 years ago, it was kind of between 2 and 5% of the British population who buy plant-based food. And, and now it's almost 50%. I mean you know, the the space has grown exponentially. And I, I think there's been three driving forces for people. It's, you know, either environmental reasons, and, and that's picking up by the day at the moment, as it becomes clearer and clearer that not that it needs necessarily 100% plant-based diet, but predominantly plant-based diet is absolutely the future. And, you know, we're seeing a huge number of people come into our brand, but into the space as total as a result for animal rights reasons and then for health reasons. And again, I think that third reason is something that's picking up day day by day. And again, it's not necessarily about becoming 100% plant-based, but that flexitarian approach. I mean, we're barely, again, in this country, 
managing a quarter of us to eat our five a day, almost 60% of our calories coming from ultra processed food. We're seeing the humongous economic burden on the NHS of the rise in lifestyle related to diseases. Like I think we're collectively realizing we've got to make a change. Um, and so there are these kind of three big driving forces in getting people to to rethink the way that they approach their diet and what they eat and what they cook. And I think as a brand that's kind of been around throughout the growth of this space, we've definitely had a right time, right place element to it. And you say day by day, you're seeing people adhere to a plant-based diet or introduce more plant-based food. Do you see that, as you were saying earlier, sort of through your community? Yeah, Exactly, exactly. And I think it's interesting to see the reasons, you know, people often share about that, why they're following us, and why they're kind of getting involved in the brand. And and a lot of that, for example, will say, oh, you know, my teenage daughter's gone plant based or gone vegetarian for environmental reasons. And, and I'm looking for recipes, which it wasn't something that we saw five years ago. And even the difference between five years ago and now in terms of plant-based options is quite unbelievable. Do you see it being almost exponential? Do you think younger generations will very much go down the roots of plant-based food? I think so. I mean, all the data that we have and, and all the data that, that's coming in at the moment is absolutely suggesting this huge wave that we're seeing of growth is absolutely kind of only moving in one direction. And um, and that probably in five to ten years time, a predominantly, not solely, but predominantly plant based vegetarian diet will be the norm. And I think it is those things you have those cultural tipping points, don't you? And I know this might sound kind of extreme to some people, but, you know, 20 years ago, smoking inside was just the normal thing. You could smoke on a plane. That now seems so extraordinary. And now we're seeing legislation coming in, you know, in New Zealand. I think it's anyone over 12 now won't be able to ever buy cigarettes. You know, we've gone from smoking absolutely everywhere to it becoming effectively illegal. And I'm not saying that, that all farming, meat farming will become illegal or no one will ever eat a piece of meat again. But I do think that the change is moving in one direction. And I think also, you know, at the risk of sounding really preachy, and I'm, I'm not advocating again that everyone's 100% plant-based, so I actually really don't believe that's the future because I guess tapping into what I said right at the beginning is like for anything to be sustainable, it's got to be enjoyable. And so you've got to find the right balance for you. That being said, we know that we're obviously facing this huge environmental crisis and we know that changing to a plant-based diet is an absolutely essential part of mitigating elements of that. And so I also don't really see how it could go any other way. And I think the younger generations clearly, again, from what all the data shows, feel a kind of increasing burden of responsibility and driver for change in that. You mentioned there about some of the stats that you guys have seen personally in terms of growth only going one direction, that kind of thing. Is that a case of you're just seeing more and more custom as you go, essentially? Definitely. We're seeing it in our customer growth, but also we've we've got someone in our team who does all, all data insights and strategy. And we've, you know, we've got kind of all the, the latest research and data from, from all the supermarkets from across the board. And it is it's really clear that a, shopping is going that way, but B, mindsets are changing as well. And so I said, uh, yeah, penetration of plant-based in supermarkets is now about 50%, where it was 2 3% 10 years ago. And for me personally, I'm obsessed with trying all different kinds of plant-based meat alternatives. Is that something you have considered or may consider branching out into? Yeah, I mean, I think that they have a really important role to play. Um, and I think, 
if we are going to get people, for, especially from an environmental perspective, moving towards a more predominantly plant-based diet, I think that they're really essential and definitely, I think, support people changing their habits. I guess our brand was founded on a bigger focus on health and well-being and plant-based um, playing that role within people's lives. Not that it can't play the other roles, but that's our kind of primary focus and genuinely helping people improve their health and their well-being and I think that the challenge generally speaking with with the meat alternatives is they do tend to be ultra processed um and so don't necessarily play that same role as I said I think that they play an important role in making this a like viable lifestyle switch for people which is absolutely essential and from an environmental perspective from an animal rights perspective like that's that's so so important but I don't think for us as a brand it feels like the right play and I think for me that's like the fundamental difference between vegan products and plant-based products is I think plant-based are more focused on that kind of natural putting vegetables in the center of your plate approach and I think vegan is more providing those like true alternatives that you genuinely could just absolutely swap in one for the other. And going forwards what's next for Deliciously Ella? Have you got any sort of plans in the making? Can you give us any sneak peeks into to what's coming up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know anyone listening's finding the same, but it's really exciting to be out of COVID. I mean, touch wood a hundred times over, but it felt very stagnant. I think the last two years, it was like you could only focus on problems and it was quite hard to see kind of exciting opportunities and moments of growth. But on a personal level as well, you know, it's nice to feel challenges and like you're doing something new, whereas it felt for almost two years you were just kind of spinning your wheels, but it was harder to spin them than ever before. So our kind of big plans at the moment are, are taking the brand international, I guess, a little bit. Like we said at the beginning, as the brand started as a brand before it was a product. And, and we've got, you know, big communities in, in different countries across the world. So now that we feel there's a yeah sense of safety and, and hopefully the pandemic being, you know, semi over that we can now really kind of reactivate all those plans that have been on pause for two years. So um, we've just launched into Austria, we're launching into Germany in May, and then we will be launching in, in the US in September. So yeah, big year. So Ella, 10 years from now, have you got any predictions, hopes, wishes for 2032? God, that sounds like a long way away, doesn't it? Well, fingers crossed we're all here still. We haven't had any more pandemics or World War Three, Four, Five, and Six. But no, I guess I feel like if I've learned one thing in the last 10 years is that you literally have no idea what's coming next. Um, And life is full of surprises, some good and some not so good and some awful. And I kind of learned that it's, yeah, it feels futile in some ways to predict it. I do think that the way we eat will be really, really different in 10 years. And I hope that Delicious Yellow can play a meaningful part in that for people and for anyone looking to change the way that they live their lives, that we can be a genuinely useful support within that. But I think that's kind of, I guess, my only hope and wish that feels like we could fulfil. Thanks for listening to An Invitation to Meet. I've been your host, John Weeks. You can find more business news and analysis in the Evening Standard newspaper and at standards.co.uk forward slash business.